You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bloody-mindedness and ruthlessness, they are qualities that you need as a writer. And particularly women writers have to cultivate them because we're not brought up to be ruthless and bloody-minded. We're brought up to be nice, even if we're not. Welcome to Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. Rejection has been a subject close to my heart ever since I didn't manage to sell my own first novel last year, and you can hear a little bit more about that in the first episode of this series if you're interested. I just wanted to let you all know that although this was originally meant to be just a 10-part series, there will now be a bonus episode, and I will let you all know who that guest will be next week. I'm really excited about it. Secondly, I just wanted to say that if you like the podcast, leaving a rating or review on the Apple podcast app, if that's what you listen to it on, is really helpful as it helps make the pod more visible in searches. So if you fancy doing that, thank you. So on to this week's guest, who is the Booker shortlisted, Women's Prize longlisted Michelle Roberts, who is, like her books, wonderfully erudite, perceptive and expressive. Michelle has been writing professionally for more than 40 years and has published 17 novels, two memoirs, and has contributed to many poetry and essay collections too. She was once poetry editor at the feminist magazine Spare Rib, and her 2007 memoir Paper Houses is a vivid account of her involvement in 70s socialism and feminism. Her new novel, Cut Out, about the women who helped Matisse create his art, is out in August. She is, by any metric, a literary success. But it is her second memoir that we discuss in this interview. Negative Capability, which came out last year, kicks off with a series of personal and professional rejections, including her publisher saying no to her manuscript at that time, which sent Michelle into a spiral of self-doubt and panic where she initially thought she was having a breakdown. Negative Capability is the story of her recovery, and it's a joyful, amusing account of a rich, everyday life, but also an honest and clear-eyed view of what it feels like to fail at something that, 16 books in, you think you've become pretty adept at doing. I found Michelle a funny and fascinating guest, and particularly enjoyed her advice about how to make a friend of your inner critic. 
Sorry about the audio quality on this one. We had to do the interview on a phone call, which makes recording a little bit trickier. But hopefully the interesting nature of the interview makes up for that. So here's Michelle. Over 40 years, you've written, I think it's 60 novels, as well as yeah. essay and short story collections, poetry collections. And, and now this is Negative Capability is your second memoir. Did you always want to be a writer? Well, yes, but I also simultaneously wanted to be a ballet dancer and a painter. <laughs> um, so one by one, the other ambitions fell away. And I realized it was writer that was going to be it. And I suppose I knew that probably, probably from a really, a really early age, yes. And so you were always writing? Yes. I used to write poetry um, in primary school. I mean, we were encouraged to, like you are in primary school. There's nothing really unusual about that, but I certainly loved it. And I started keeping a diary when I was about 10, I think. How long did that diary last? Because obviously negative capability is a diary, but presumably you weren't writing that diary up until then. No, but that first diary was a five-year diary, 61 to 65. And after that, I just bought exercise books and kept a diary. And I've done so ever since. But I've never really kept a diary where you write every day what you've done. Mm. It was more just needing to write about life and what I was thinking and feeling. Mm. So I might write two or three times a week. I mean, it's always been erratic, but completely constant. That's interesting. Going back a little bit, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like getting your first novel, A Piece of the Night, published? I think that was in your 20s, wasn't it? Yes, I was, I think, 28. Well, I was thrilled a bit, <laughs> absolutely um, overjoyed because I had actually previously been part of a short story collective group. And we, as a group, published a book of short stories. We wrote the stories singly, but collaborated in literary criticism. And the book was called Tales I Tell My Mother. That came out just before. And also I'd been in another group writing <clears throat> poems and we published a few poetry pamphlets as a group. So I had been previously published, and that was thrilling. And I do want to pay tribute to those groups because they were my, my learning place for, you know, as a writer, working with a peer group of other women. I think that's such an interesting point. I mean, I suppose when I came to fiction writing, I had been a journalist for a long time, and in a way I suppose that was my practice. But I think, I think there is a misconception sometimes that, that you don't need to learn to write. That, that you either can do it or you can't. Yes, I think that is a misconception. I, I think the key word for me is desire. And if you desire to write, you're probably a very keen reader. And it's through reading that you learn to write and then through practice of your own. And most writers have one or two or three people who who read their stuff and comment on it. I mean, that it's a very... Um, white male notion that the solitary genius in the garret. I mean, it goes mm -hmm. back to the romantics, I think. But, you know, you just look at somebody like Coleridge and he had Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth and he could walk the hills of the Lake District with them discussing poetry and redrafts and, and so on till the cows came home. It, it's a myth that you don't need to learn how to do it. Yeah. But I do think if you've got a... I won't even say talent, a, a bent towards it. It's because you love it mm. and want to do it. And it's, that's the, those are the key words, I think. Yes. So negative capability 
which was published last year, is is a diary, um, and it's about many things. I mean, it's it's actually a very joyous book. It's about life and love, and and also food. I was very hungry reading it. <laughs> Lots of lovely lunches, but. Its jumping off point is obviously um, the rejection by your publisher of a novel you were writing. And you write no, in... it isn't really. Sorry, oh, okay. can I just... Yeah, no, it isn't. It's really funny that lots of people don't get this, and I think I didn't emphasise it enough. The jumping off point for the book was that one night I had a, an emotional and psychological collapse overnight, and that's described at the end of the first chapter. And I felt I'd had some sort of a breakdown, that I'd completely lost myself didn't know who I was, where I was, what was going on. It was really, really frightening. And as a result, in the middle of that experience, I thought the only thing I can do is write because that might gather up all the scattered bits of myself and put them back together. The idea was that narrative might join me back together again. Uh, I was like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. So the next day I got up and wrote about the events of the day before. And the first sentence is, yesterday ended in disaster. And in that first chapter, I certainly mentioned the fact that a novel had been rejected a while before, and that had contributed to my feeling mm-hmm. intensely miserable. So it was it was a number of things. Is that right? You you had had yes. that experience. In fact, I've got it here. You say layers and layers of memories shimmering and sparkling around you. I think you yes. say, and, and yes, you're starting the diary to put yourself back back together and that there were a number of things that perhaps had contributed to that to that um, experience I think something in your love life and your argument with your friend Susan and and the book um, is that fair all those contributory factors coming together yes and then also feeling very vulnerable in my flat because there was such a lot of noise going on overhead feeling that I didn't have a safe space I suppose I felt invaded by um, these very very noisy neighbours who were always quarrelling I think when you're feeling fraught emotionally the outside world can suddenly you know you can feel a bit paranoid I think Yes, what's funny about that first chapter is actually that it is very funny you describe those noises in a very amusing way and although it is obviously traumatic for the reader I think it also you know it's very colourful chapter with these neighbours making all their noise and you sort of escaping yeah, the flat that, to the shopping. That tone of voice just arrived with writing and perhaps I unconsciously had made a writerly decision that one way of coping with something that feels traumatic is to be funny about it yes. well perhaps I shouldn't say traumatic because trauma you can't use humor for but something that feels really really upsetting humor is is a way of tackling it and there's a lot of humor in that in that book which quite surprised me because <laughs> sometimes when I was going through the stuff I just thought oh lord I feel so miserable <laughs> yeah but the, by the next day I could look at it and, and write about it comically so I was quite pleased that I found that as a as a tool for feeling better was to make jokes. Well, very mild ones, but I'm glad you I'm glad you picked them up. Yeah, no, it's a very it's a very funny book. Going back to the publishing thing, you write at one point quite early on, you say, I'm a writer, that's my identity and always has been a solid core. Now I felt that my inside was a fragile, hollow eggshell that had been struck with a hammer, splintered, smashed, nothing of me left. Do you remember even now the the pain of that rejection, that early experience with the publisher? And obviously we'll talk about how that evolves. But when that was first happening, how how did it feel? Because your your publisher had said that they found your novel too intense, too heavy. And and at that point, 
I think your agent was telling you that it, you know, it wasn't a kind of invitation to resubmit. It was just that's it, that's done. What was yes. that like? Well, it's <laughs> it's that that image of um, that what was inside me was just sort of empty air, and this fragile membrane eggshell had been smashed. It's very hard to put into words. I think that's perhaps what a trauma is that if you feel smashed up inside that's quite a concrete image but the actual experience is one of dissolution you dissolve mm. you're scattered you're not there and it, it was just pain it was um a physical pain and a kind of bewilderment and um floundering about yeah mm. very painful i mean you talk a lot throughout the book and you have in the past in interviews and so on talked about rejection in other forms you've had in your life um, for example, well, not always rejection against you, but for example, your rejection of Catholicism and your difficulties with your, your mother. I wondered if you think that many writers use writing to sort of work out um, various traumas, childhood or otherwise, to the extent that rejection of novels might always feel like a very personal rejection of, of themselves. I think they're two separate things. And, you know, not all writers are the same. So, when I talk to other writers, some of them cope with rejection better than others. Uh, we have obviously we, we we talk about it, and and some writers are more shy of talking about their internal lives and don't wish to discuss it. It really really varies. I don't think writing is consciously engaged upon as a, some sort of therapeutic exercise. I think that might be a byproduct. In my own case, I've felt either when I'm happy or when I'm very miserable. The act of making a narrative does seem to be like a kind of reweaving of an internal life that's mapped onto an external life. And what you're doing is taking a kind of mad whirling chaos inside you, which you could say is full of language or images. You're bringing it out into the world. And because you're putting one thing after another, that's what narrative does. You're, you're making connections. You're making patterns. And that's when I think, I see the connection between writing and painting, that I wanted to be a painter and I think I would have painted abstract paintings mm. and I would perhaps have painted images of um, an internal world of chaos made coherent through form and colour. In the end, I decided to go for using language instead, which tends to be much more linear apart from some kinds of poetry. So that's, that's the fascination, is playing with form and thinking about narrative the byproduct of working and of making pieces of work is that you do feel, because you've created something, temporarily more whole. And it's that, um, the reference I'd make here, it's, I can't remember the name for it, but it's, it's that Japanese form where in sculpture you, you take, say, a, a smashed jar, uh, pieces of ceramic, and you glue them back together again and you let gold show in the cracks, the yes. mend. Yeah. And you don't, my view of it is that you don't know what the original shape might have been. That doesn't matter. What you're doing is using cracks, gaps, and little bits to make something that you hope is beautiful. And um, it's partly something that's mended, it's partly something that's found, and it's partly something that's new. So given that that's what you're doing formally as an artist or as a writer, it could be that simultaneously on an unconscious level that's happening to your psyche as well. Mm. But I don't think you would go 
Yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of, as you know, of course, masses of work, very, very hard work involved in, in making art and trying to do it well. So somebody who's in fantastic psychological distress wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I'll write a novel, that will help me. I think you might decide, first of all, to get some counselling. Don't write saying. a novel to make yourself feel better. That's, that's a byproduct. Can you talk me through the process a little bit of that book? So at, at the start of Negative Capability, it, it's been turned down by, by your publisher. How long had you been writing it for at that stage? And what were your original hopes for the novel in terms of narrative and themes? I mean, you mention in it that you're, you're not a great planner and that you and you talk a lot about the evolution of the novel both within your own writing and, and in conjunction with your agent but I wondered if you yeah if you if you could describe the process up until that point a little bit well I I began writing a novel I knew I wanted to write another novel and it's always a very vague feeling until something crystallizes and Oh, God, it's so difficult to remember. I think, first of all, the first version that uh, that failed, which was a fine failure, because that's about wanting to redraft, was it was about a woman moving house in London and coming to live in a much older house, an early Georgian house. She was going to live in the basement flat, which had been the kitchen, obviously, and just getting to grips with what felt like very strange, odd currents of feeling. And that was a good place to start, but it was not really taking me very far anywhere. And then it was really like an an active haunting almost. Another story jumped up from sort of underneath that text, I suppose from my unconscious, but it was like from the unconscious of the novel I was writing, and erupted and demanded to be written. And that was a story set in the past, the exact past of the house I'd been describing, about the people who'd come and gone in the house. And at that point, I abandoned the first novel, the one with the modern setting, and just wrote this 19th century novel. And the hero was a bit of an anti-hero. He was a a quite difficult man, but through his process of undertaking some kind of detective work and encountering a strange and mysterious woman who ran the household he was visiting, things began to change. And it was very much about masculinity and about how men can have enormous difficulties in recognising women without having prejudices about them. Mm. And in particular, because the woman in this case was a black woman, his his own racism came into it, that he just failed completely to understand that a black woman could be a businesswoman, extremely clever, extremely intelligent, and also compassionate. So the novel was about this man, Joseph, gradually disentangling himself from preconceptions and moving towards this mysterious woman. And it was a very intense novel, and it certainly was a lot about male difficulties with women. So there was a lot of his, you could call them negative feelings about women, his anger, his distrust, his suspicions, his, his sexual difficulties. He's a sort of passionate, very passionate man, but doesn't really know how to be friendly with women. And I was really pleased with it because it was so such a passionate and intense and committed novel. But I think that's why the publisher... And my then agent found it heavy because it had such a lot of male negativity in it. I didn't think I had written a a negative novel at all. But anyway, that's what they thought. Mm. So they rejected it. Had it been quite a few years you'd been writing it at that stage? Well, it must have been at least two years because I'd started the first one. Then the second one erupted at some speed, actually. Um, Once I knew what I was writing about, which was this man going into this house, that was it. The man enters the house. 
it's dark. He goes upstairs following a maidservant. You know, it's a sort of mystery, I suppose. Uh, it poured out of me, and I wrote it at top speed. And I thought I'd written a good novel, perhaps because I'd written it with such passion and commitment. You know, when you've got these feelings in yourself about your own work, yeah. it's easy to think you've written something very good. Um, but they didn't think so. They thought it was, yeah, much too heavy, much too intense, although they recognised it. It did have some lovely bits in it. <laughs> I actually, yeah, that was going to be one of my later questions, actually, because I found that really interesting. That you, you, you particularly thought it was, you know, that you say that it had almost seemed to write itself. And mm. um, it must have been such a shock, the kind of um, the gap between what you thought you'd done and then to hear that, actually, no, this isn't one we want. That must have yes, been a tremendous it, shock. It, it was. It was. And in a sense, I mean, perhaps I'd been lulled by the fact that I had had so many novels published previously. I mean, I felt I knew how to do it. I felt, you know, experienced. And I felt I've got a few clues here about how you go about writing a novel. I mean, I did feel professionally capable as well as yes. this personal sense of complete conviction and commitment. Yes. So, yes, and this it was is a, Daughters of the shock. House. Uh, your, your, one of your early novels was shortlisted for the Booker and, and won um, the W.H. Smith Literary Award in '93. And Ignorance was longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 20, I think, 2013. Um, do you think that success can sort of have a blinding effect in any way? Or um, that's a slightly different question because I wasn't really talking about feeling that my success meant I thought I could write good novels. It was more that I felt I'd been working being a novelist for many years ah, okay. and that I'd learned how to do it through trial and error, through failure, yes. through success. Success meaning being able to complete a novel that people want to read. The whole fame thing is something quite separate and I'm totally happy to talk about it because it might be connected to the, your topic, but it's not the same thing. When I talk about things like success and power, I mean the power to put three words together, the power to put three sentences together, the power to eventually complete a novel. And I did, I don't think arrogantly, but I suppose you could say it was arrogant. I did think I knew how to do that. Um, what was interesting was that later I came around to seeing their point of view much more. And that's something about the difference in how you feel when you've just finished a novel and how you feel, say, a year later when you look at it. Mm. You can see its flaws. And although I still stand by that novel, and one day I'd love to publish it as an oddity, I can see what they saw in it, which was the intensity of this man. They just didn't want to believe that the male psyche could be like this. And if I'd been Philip Roth, they'd have all said, oh, whoopee, here's a man writing about men. Yes, yes, yes. But a woman doing it, I think they felt, and also they wanted it to be, you know, sell lots and lots of copies. And I think it was just all a bit too intense for them. But the book the book did eventually get published in a, in a form, didn't it? The Woolworth Beauty is, is yes, that Yes, it book. did. Yeah. And what happened was I went, because the publisher said, no, that's it, go away, take it away. Mm. But at that interview, from Pride, I, mean, I think obviously I was speaking, I said to her, I can think of a way to rewrite it. She said, great. And I went off. And she didn't say, send it to me and I'll, think about a contract she just said thank you very much goodbye and that was fine because that was the point of the interview was to say your book is not wanted <laughs> so <laughs> I went away and there is a bit of me I call it bloody mindedness it's very strong 
bloody-mindedness and ruthlessness. They are qualities that you need as a writer, and particularly women writers have to cultivate them because we're not brought up to be ruthless and bloody-minded. We're brought up to be nice. Even if we're not, we are brought up to be hypocrites. So to come out to yourself as ruthless and bloody-minded is very important, I think. So I did yet again. (laughs) And I set to, and I realized that what I wanted to do was return to that first novel, the one that had the modern woman and the modern life in it, and combine the two novels. And then it, it all started to fall into place, that the modern woman in the modern story, living in the 1820s house basement, is going to be haunted by the people in the past, including this man with all his intensity and sexual frustrations and so on, and rages. And that's when the Woolworth Beauty began to take shape. And what was interesting was I realised that it wasn't just that the past haunted the present, but that the present haunted the past. So that I was writing a, a writing about the imagination in a way that people's lives can intersect in a space or a, lay, a layer of experience called the imagination. And um, and I think, actually, I did make the man, as, as part of my rewriting, I thought, okay, if he's too heavy and intense, maybe don't spell it out. Let the reader feel that. I'll give, I'll give more clues about his affability, his warmth, his, you know, his likability, I suppose. I'll, I'll make him more rounded. So I think that, that probably helped. I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful book, and it's and it's so interesting to hear about the evolution of it because it is you know it, it is a book that deals with time, and and you know its its genesis is also has this sort of flitting in and out of itself thing as well. I I wonder if I found it so interesting reading about the balance between you staying true to your vision and then having to take account of the publisher and the agent and the market. Um, yes. Is that something you often feel that you have to do? I mean, how important do you think that is generally? Well, that's an enormous question, Francesca, and a very, very good one, I think. And I'm sure you've come up against it yourself. What I find quite difficult nowadays is to separate what publishers are saying about the market and what agents are saying about the market. And and what is about whether a book is good or not and... I think at the moment there's an enormous confusion in the commercial world about literary value and commercial value. And they've become collapsed into each other and actually commercial value has taken over. And that's the value that the market believes in. And literary value is something kind of washing around on the floor and it doesn't really matter. It's a complete reversal of sort of 50 years ago when good novels were supposed to be literary novels and um, other novels or genre novels, you know, sort of, oh, thrillers, oh, romances. And, mm-hmm. and now what matters to a lot of agents is that a novel should be saleable, that it will make a lot of money, it will become a bestseller and sell masses of copies. And the old idea, when I was growing up, I was very fortunate, a publisher took you on and saw you as an apprentice, but was willing to give you a run, you know, that you could... You got better as you wrote more books and the publisher was loyal and committed. I mean, they were those were wonderful times. And the result of my travails was that I changed publishers and changed agents. And I yeah. found a wonderful agent who is sort of honest and a very good critic, but kind of very caring as well. So I never feel pressured by him to, to write anything I don't want to write. Never. Yes. I mean, I think... 
it's interesting because at the same time, you know, in, in negative capability, we do see the effect of, you know, the, the positive effect of collaboration as well. So, so the joining of your two books comes from sort of criticism of of the the male centered one, doesn't it? So, I mean, it, market aside, Absolutely. it is it is useful to have um, another pair of eyes on, on your manuscript, yes. isn't it? Yes, and I think it was really good what the publisher said that it wasn't working what hurt and upset me was the manner in which the book was talked about and I was spoken to and those again are two different things and that's really important to say because obviously good criticism helps the writer improve and all my life I've been extremely fortunate to receive good and helpful criticism a lot from other writers I have to say and occasionally from one or two very good editors and currently from this very good agent. That's different from how somebody might speak to you about what's wrong. And can I just very quickly say something? Am I talking too much? No, no, you're talking a, a lot, and that's good. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, the point. <laughs> I've, I've taught creative writing a great deal, so I've learned how to teach it. And when you're criticising students work you always start this is my invention it's obvious you start with telling them what works you don't say what you like or what's kind of nice you never use those words you talk about what works objectively and you tell the student why okay it's a personal view but you argue for it then you move on to step two which is to tell them if there's anything that you think doesn't work and you say why and they can take that criticism because you've told them what works so they've got kind of stepping stones, rocks to stand on in the middle of the turbulent river. And then step three is to suggest what they might do as a next draft. Well, obviously not all editors can work like that, but it it's a completely um, helpful way of approaching things because it means a writer is therefore open to being told what doesn't work if she's been told, first of all, what does work. And in my case, I was just told it felt brutally and cruelly, it doesn't work, we don't want it, take it away. There was no suggestion of, um, you know, what can we do, how can we make this better, mm. can we edit this? Mm. That was the problem. The actual advice, <laughs> when it finally came, when I understood it, when I took it away and thought, what do they mean, it's too intense, it's too heavy, I could use and I could work with. But I, perhaps you think I'm being oversensitive, and I probably am, but... I think writers are fantastically sensitive and like anyone, if if you'd just had a baby and I came along and said, oh, it's got too many fingers on that hand. Let's chop a couple off. And <laughs> well, I don't like its earlobes. They're much too long. Let's chop those off. <laughs> you know, you might just be a little bit upset. <laughs> <laughs> what do you tell your, I mean, I think at the moment you, do you, you're Emeritus Professor of Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia. Is that right? Yes. What do you tell students about how to handle criticism or rejection? What, how do you advise them to deal with it? Well, I'm not currently teaching, but what I've always said all my life through teaching is um, talk to other writers, get support from other writers whom you esteem and trust. And often that's a friendship group or it might be a writing group. And encourage each other to be bloody-minded and ruthless and to keep going. I tell people the great thing is to keep going. I say also, which I've said to, had to say to myself, of course, you know, put the work away for a bit, a few weeks, come back to it, you see it freshly, and you can then start to see 
what might be wrong with it and where you might want to improve it. But I do say to people, if you've started writing out of that desire to make something, then re reconnect with your desire and keep going. But believe in your own vision as well, because, you know, I refuse to write books for a highly over-commercialized market, and that's what I stick to. Um, and that's fine. That's my credo, if you like. And, and you still love it, having written yes. many, many novels. Yes, I still love writing and get enormous joy from it. It certainly isn't all pain and rejection. Yeah. There's huge pleasure as well. And then that comes across both in your novels and in Negative Capability, which, as I've mentioned, I mean, Negative Capability, um, despite all this chat about rejection, is an incredibly joyous book. And actually, you say in it, you say you felt like you had to let go of your identity as a writer at one point. And I think for the reader, you know, you spend all all this time in these wonderful places, you know, your trips to France and your house in France and all the food, as I've mentioned. I mean, I really felt reading it like I was out to lunch eating the most delicious food and having the most interesting conversations do you feel did you feel when you were writing it like you sort of became more than a writer you acquired some new sort of identity not quite because that statement I make right at the end of the book and I talk about a writerly identity possibly being a carapace so a carapace has to be shattered and I realized after the book was published that what I was talking about was being a kind of grub inside a chrysalis and a chrysalis shatters when it's time for the grub to emerge and change it's about metamorphosis so that my initial shattering in chapter one was that chrysalis breaking perhaps but I couldn't recognize it I just felt I was having a breakdown and I chose the chapters to write because it's one chapter a month I every month did pick a particular day that had felt interesting because I thought if I just wrote 12 chapters of me sitting in my workroom <laughs> trying to write, you know, there wouldn't be an awful lot to write about. I mean, <laughs> I was conscious of having a readership, possibly. Although, actually, funnily enough, that's not true, because at the time of writing the diary, it was very private, and I never thought of publishing it. It was two other writers who urged me to publish it. But I did deliberately pick days that felt interesting ones so I think I probably made my life look a bit more <laughs> glamorous and fun and interesting than it often is but on the other hand the well you did a good saying, job it does look very glamorous and interesting <laughs> <laughs> well I'd love to feel I was glamorous that would be fantastic but I, I think in a way what the book is saying is it is about an attitude isn't it that I found that in lockdown that you can you can enjoy life you can find beautiful things to look at you can find funny or amusing things to overhear or look at if you're in the mood to open up to the world. So I think I was choosing days when when I'd been able to do that. Yes. And I what were you doing write. on the other days? Well, I was probably just sitting at home writing um, <laughs> and sometimes feeling gloomy yeah. and sometimes feeling I'd drunk too much and sometimes feeling ratty with neighbours, you know, um, being a very ordinary human being. Yes. I think that's important to to remember when we talk about rejection and, you know, a podcast like this and that, you know, the idea of putting a positive spin on, on difficult times, you don't want to be oppressive with that positivity that, you know, you're still allowed bad days. Absolutely. I think that's terribly important because I know there's been, um, I didn't realize it when writing my book because I didn't think it would get published and I didn't want to, but there has been a slight vogue, hasn't there, for you know, books about how we use 
not misery memoirs at all, but how we use difficult times in our lives and failures and make something out of them. Well, that's great because it recalls a phrase by a sentence by Jung. He said that the point of making mistakes is making something, is using them to make something with, you know. So that's that's wonderful. And I did, in the end, find that out of failure or apparent of failure, you make something new. But I, I think the road <laughs> is full of obstacles and difficulties. And and I suppose what I recognised, Francesca, was that that's the normal road for being a writer. It's full of potholes and pitfalls and pratfalls yeah. and times of depression and times of, you know, feeling lonely or cross. And um, that's part of my real life. And that's very much part of my life now. I mean, there are pleasure and joy and love are interwoven with all the other things. Yes. And I think what you've said is really important. I agree with you. You talk about the sneering inner critic, I think you refer to it as, yes. um, a lot in the book, particularly when you're editing. Is that inner critic normally quite sneery? Where, where is it usually when you're not being rejected by your publisher? How, does, yeah, how, well, how is it incorporated it, into your editing experience in um, more regular times? Yeah. I think you have to make a friend of it and turn it into the helpful critic. And it's interesting because my initial image of criticism and writing was was like a mother and child and that the child did the writing kind of what I call messing about in the sandpit mucking about in the sandpit playing because writing making art is about playfulness and then a more grown-up bit comes in which is the mother and and suggests perhaps better ways to make the sandcastle or muck about and sometimes that's been a good image, but sometimes internally the mother and child were quarrelling and had to be <laughs> shown somehow to relate better to each other. And I think now the, the critic is just more of a general sort of grown-up figure, not necessarily gendered, but a kind of slightly more grown-up, wise part. Mm. But there's very importantly that, that aggression, rage, pleasure, playfulness, joy and dirt that the child has that is about writing and you need a tolerant person with you to say that's okay you can make a mess but hey maybe it's time to stop now and we'll have a look at what you've made um i've i've had a lot of um i've spent a lot of time inventing those internal figures and getting to know them and it's something i did when i was teaching that lots of students had punitive internal figures I used to call my bad mother figure, I used to call her mother superior. She was a nun <laughs> and she had rolling pin and she beat me around the head. And making her a comic character helped a lot. And I'd say to myself and my students, put her in a story, put her in a story, like make her a character, then you can relate to her. And the other thing I'd say was tickle her and dance the tango with her. <laughs> it's like make her more of a friend, then she's less of a terrifying enemy. Because when I was young, I had a terrifying inner, well, Freud calls it the superego, the, the conscience part. It was very punitive. That goes straight back to Catholicism, obviously. Mm. Um, yes. I've learned to have a, a more helpful inner figure as my critic and editor. But obviously at times of enormous difficulty, Reverend Mother with her rolling pin returns. Yes. I mean, I suppose that just never goes away. You're just no. tolerant for handling her improves or alters or yes um how many drafts do you think you went through for what became the Woolworth Beauty then if you if you count 
the original story of just the woman and then the latter story of just the man and how how many drafts do you think you went through well in a sense um i don't know i mean i could say three drafts of whole novels i suppose but because the way i write is to redraft every page as i'm writing it and of course on a on a laptop you can redraft a million times it's absolutely brilliant so i redraft intensively all the time i'm writing as i'm going through a novel and then when i get to the end I'll redraft the whole thing because you can see the shape, you know, and you okay. you can see how to move things about. So intensive redrafting is is the writing process, I'd say. Yes. Your title, which I think we should just touch on, so negative capability is is from a letter um, by Keats in eighteen seventeen, isn't it, where he he yes. wrote of a state in which a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, and without irritable reaching after fact and reason this sort of idea evolves throughout your book what does it what does it mean to you I think it was a way of stopping fretting stopping thinking I ought to be able to solve this problem now I ought to be able to write a goodish novel now I ought to be able to be happy all these oughts and shoulds it's more beating myself around the head and Keats seemed to be talking about a state of pure being, I mean, quite zen, really, about being open to the world and not not having to come at it with intellectual structures or apprehensions. And that's incredibly helpful because without realizing it, I think we might all have structured ways of seeing the world and understanding it that have become unconscious. And therefore, we're going to miss a lot because it doesn't fit our grid. And he that's how I'm un- understanding what Keats meant. I don't know whether other people would have the same interpretation. It seemed to me that I had to try and discard some of the ways I had of looking at things, which had to do with this carapace of being a hardworking writer who, who could finish things okay, <laughs> and yes. get them published. And I had to return to something much more sort of innocent and playful and childish, which was be in the world every day and see what happens, just see what happens. Yes. And, of course, it's a lovely way to be. It, it, it's an absolutely marvellous way to be because you're always being surprised. You might be surprised by joy, but also by someone else's despair. You know, you're noticing what's happening on the street and there's a lot of despair and um, unhappiness and aggro on the street as well as people being funny and saying sweet things but I found it absolutely invaluable as a way to try and live my life every day yes it's what I find interesting about it actually is it's it's a sort of acquiescence you know an acceptance of um, powerlessness in a way and yet by making a narrative of your life taking control is in fact exactly what you did and you in fact, by acquiescing, you know, created a narrative. Mm. It's, it's an interesting juxtaposition, I think. Yes, you're right, actually, Francesca. You're absolutely right. It's a sort of paradox, I think. that, And the acceptance of being powerless was very helpful. And I found that very helpful during lockdown, that, you know, just saying to myself, this thing I cannot change, simply can't change it, so I'm just going to live with it. And it's really helpful that you don't have to cure other people or fix them. And you certainly don't have to cure or fix yourself. And it doesn't mean that you go through life 
wafting along saying hello moon hello flowers <laughs> at all it, it means you're kind of very fully present you're much more present because you're not always thinking of what should I be doing next and how should I do this and you know I must do this and I must do that um, yes. yeah I can't always it. do it but I can't always do it at all but I try to or I forget to do it and then I realize that I'm miserable. Oh, that's because I'm forgetting to be Keatsian. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's been quite life-altering for you in a way, this, yes. this idea. Yes, it has. Yes. And you've since written another novel, Cut Out, yes. which is out in August. Tell, tell me a little yes. bit about that and, and what the experience of writing it was like after everything in Negative Capability and The War With Beauty and so on. Well, it is, a, I think, a quite joyful novel, although it's about difficulty because it's about the young women who helped Matisse make his cutouts at the very end of his life. He was uh, bed-bound or else in a wheelchair. He was very, very ill. He'd had stomach cancer and, you know, he was basically on the route to dying, but he was working away and he needed these young women assistants to pin up his cutouts on the wall and move them about as he gestured at them. But also to help him make the cutouts, they held the big sheets of paper that they had painted and they moved it as he instructed while he cut into it with shears. So they were active and vital contributors. And there was a wonderful film when the cutouts exhibition came on Tate Modern a few years ago. I went to it many times because I love Matisse's work. There was this very short film showing Matisse make the cutouts with these two young women. And I just became totally intrigued by them. And so I wanted to write a novel about them. And so I did. <laughs> and I made up the two young women. I mean, my two protagonists were not the women in the film because I felt that was not right. So um, I invented two young women, although one of my young women is based on the nurse aide of Matisse, who later became a nun, and who got Matisse to design the chapel at Vence using cutout techniques for the decoration. So she is, in a sense, a sort of portrait, but not really. But the other one, who is my narrator, one of them, is a totally invented character. And it, it's about the struggle to make art. Um, that's the real story of, of the novel about mm. who gets to make art and who doesn't and who does the culture and the society help to become an artist and who does it say that's not your role, that's not your business, you're meant to be doing something else. And obviously that's to do with gender. There's quite a lot of themes of social exclusion in the novel, mm. um, but they're quite gently laid out because I didn't want to be preacherly. You know, that's boring. Yes. You don't and it want sounds, to do that. I mean, the theme is, is, is in some way in keeping with the experience you had recently been through, presumably yes. as well. Uh, absolutely. It's about very much there's a young woman who is one of my two narrators who, who wants to, to become an artist and is told she'll never ma manage it. She'll, she'll fail. She's, she's not good enough. Um, and it's what she does about that, how she how she uses that failure. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't really see that I was so closely talking about my own experience. I was so convinced I was <laughs> making up this character called Clemence. <laughs> <laughs> what was the process of writing it like? Did it pour out of you? Did you worry about it as you were writing it because of your recent experience? Or, or was, it an, was it a joyful, easy, well, you know, <laughs> relatively easy writing experience? Well, the thing is, at the beginning of a novel, and I'm sure you know this, you're always you're doing this negative capability thing because you don't know what you're doing. At least I don't. I, I'm hovering about. I'm waiting. I'm I'm sort of holding a mass of chaotic images. I'm 
I'm waiting to find the form and I'm experimenting with should the form be this or that and and eventually it dawned on me that a novel about art could be told in scenes. So that was the form that I actually numbered the scenes and gave them little titles like paintings. And then I realized I wanted photographs in it because I wanted to show Matisse not as some kind of realist character in a realist novel, but as a as a subject of photographs taken by an imaginary photographer. So they came in. And then I realized Clemence, because I want she 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 it, uh, wanted to write her story in the first person, to tell it in the first person. I always have to think, well, who, why is a person speaking her story? I mean, and I realized Clemence is talking to two women who want to make a TV film about art brut and um, outsider art and amateur art. And they are interviewing Clemence as a very old woman. So she's telling them her life story. All that took, must have took at least a year, I think, to, to sort out. And I was kind of writing stuff. You know, you just write experimentally and it's very helpful, but you discard it. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether that's how you work and I hope you will tell me. But um, eventually I realized I had a story, but it did take about a year. It always does, but that was all right because I was feeling much more cheerful. I just was. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. And I'm and I'm so happy for you that you had a more, you know, well, you had a positive experience in, in um, the way it turned out with your with the water yes. beauty and negative capability. But obviously, it didn't feel very positive at the time. And this sounds like a slightly more positive experience to, to be in at the time with cutout. Yes. Well, you know, what was astonishing was when I finished negative capability, two women writers, I have a regular writers group with who are really important people for me both said, oh, you must try and publish it. So I said, boof, but they insisted. So I sent it <laughs> on to my agent and he liked it and said yes. And people have really liked that book because it's being very honest and open about how awful you can feel when you feel like a failure, but how you might also mend things and come through. And it, as you say, it's about daily living. And that's what lots of people liked is just... Oh, she does have lunch. Oh, yes. she does drink rather a lot, doesn't she? It's funny you mention the drinking because that, that is one of the things I noticed. And it, what I really noticed about that is that it makes the book feel very present. So you're not, I mean, obviously it is a diary, so it is present, but it's not like you're looking back on it and going, oh, that was a terrible time. But, you know, it's actually you're really in the moment going, oh, God, I, I just had you know, four glasses of wine and my yeah. nap's taken too long and now I feel a bit rubbish. I mean, it's it's yeah. very funny, but it's also, yeah, it's very, very honest and um, in the present moment. And I liked that very much about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we have one remaining guest from the original lineup. That's Douglas Stewart, author of Shuggy Bane, who will be on next week. And then we have our mystery bonus episode guest. And I'll tell you who that will be next week. If you fancy popping over and saying hello on Twitter, I'm at Francesca Steele. It would be lovely to hear from you. And also just a reminder that you can find the link to my online bookstore in the show notes. And there are books by all my guests there for you to purchase. Thank you so much. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.